Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 96 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Dan Simmons the best-selling author of almost 30 books that span a wide range of genres. His novels include Hyperion, Carry and Comfort, The Terror, and Drood. His new book, The Abominable, is about a team of climbers attempting to summit Mount Everest in the 1920s while being stalked by sinister forces. And since it's almost Halloween, we decided to make this a horror-themed episode. So our interview with Dan will focus mostly on his work as a horror writer, and then stick around after the interview as guest geeks Grady Hendrix and James Gates join us to discuss sex and horror. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Dan Simmons. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. All right, and so your new book is called The Abominable. So what's that about? Well, it sounds like it's about an abominable snowman, doesn't it? And it is about Mount Everest, but I... I can promise you that it doesn't focus on abominable snowmen. It's really a book about climbing in the 1920s and three good friends. There's a an older veteran of the Great War named um, Richard Davis Deacon who had such an experience in the war that he was going to be a lord, but he tried to renounce his title. You can't renounce your title, it turns out, in England. So he had to keep it, but he gave away all his estates and so forth and just focus on mountain climbing in the Alps. And with him is a young Frenchman, just a little bit too young to fight in the war, although he lost two brothers and cousins and uncles, Jean-Claude Clairot. And Jean-Claude is an expert in uh, on ice and snow climbing. And my third climber is uh, Jacob, Jake Perry, and he's my innocent American who's very strong and a wonderful rock climber. And these three, through an array of interesting circumstances, get a shot at climbing Everest, get funded by it for for climbing Mount Everest in 1925, and then that's the center of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and reading this book, I was just blown away by how much detail there is about both the history and the technique of mountain climbing. I was just wondering what sort of research into mountain climbing did you do? I've loved uh, being in the mountains for years. We moved to Colorado in 1974 just so I could see them, if not hike up all of them. And I uh, have had a long interest in the history of mountain climbing. But in this case, uh, I spent about a year researching the 1920s artifacts of mountain climbing, the difference in ice axes, uh, the um, rare, if non-use, of crampons that are so common today. I mean, these guys were at 28,000 feet, and they were wearing silk and cotton and wool, essentially, um, not as much as the average um, person in New York would put on to go out walking on a cold uh, or a chilly autumn day. No goose down, none of the super fabrics we have today. And their ropes were essentially clothesline. They, they would break 95% of the time. If there was more than a 20-foot fall, the rope would snap and one or both would, would tumble to their death. It was just a very dangerous era. So uh, one of the more horrific aspects of the book are the descriptions of what happens to a human body when it falls from a very high cliff. Uh, could you talk about that? Uh, there's a, You can go on certain websites and see the more than 200 bodies that litter all the routes up uh, Mount Everest today. They don't remove the bodies. 
And so anybody who pays their fifty or sixty thousand dollars or more now to be guided up Everest, essentially you're using a Jumar, you're using a mechanical ascender on a fixed rope while your guide helps you, you know, get up the hill. Uh but they, they go buy dozens of bodies. And the damage to the human body from a high fall is is comparable to what uh, my character Richard Davis Deacon saw in World War One when artillery shells landed right among men. Just blows people to pieces. Mm-hmm. But in the book, it talks about them, you know, like the just remains of somebody being scattered over, I don't even know, like a mile or something of the cliff face. It's this really horrific uh, image. Yeah, that's all accurate. That was actually talking about Edward Wimper's first ascent of the Matterhorn which is one of the great true fables of mountain climbing. I mean, it's just, it sounds like a legend. It's, it's so fascinating. Uh, all, all of the Wimper's attempts to get to the summit, and he finally does. Seven of them get to the summit of Matterhorn in Europe, of course. But someone slips coming down, and four of the seven fall um, about 3,000 feet to their death. And uh, just trying to identify the remains when... Wimper finally paid the, these guides in their city a lot of money to go up and look for the remains on the glacier and the Burger Schoen at the base of the mountain. They would find a bit of this person and a bit of that person. One person, they only found part of his jaw, but they identified him from that. And uh, one person, they just found an empty boot. And that was Lord Douglas. He was 18 years old, very a novice at climbing, but a very brave young man. And they only found a boot, no body. And that led his mother to believe that he survived somewhere on the mountain, that he was still alive up there, maybe in a cave or in an ice cave down on the glacier. And she wanted to pay people to go hunt for him even two years after his death, after his fall. They never did find his body. And that idea of this poor but rich older woman mourning that way, not accepting her son's death, led to the gimmick in The Abominable, my book, where uh, Lady Bromley, the mother of a missing climber who wasn't with Mallory and Irvin, but disappeared the same year in my book, pays these people to go hunt for her son on Mount Everest. Uh, so another really horrific section of the book is a funeral in which the deceased is eaten by vultures. Uh, is that something that really happens? That's something that really happens, and that really happens uh, near the Tangbosh Monastery, which is the last stop really before you go into the valley uh, to climb Mount Everest. And uh, I've seen the same thing in person in the Tower of Silence in Bombay, where they set the bodies out for the vultures. You're saying you personally witnessed that that ceremony? Uh, yeah, it's, yes, I have. I, I wasn't allowed to, to be that close, but you can watch as the ceremony goes on and just see them lay the bodies out. And, you know, that's in the city of Bombay. And over this, um, it, it's almost like a building being constructed with a lot of open girders. And above that are circling scores, if not hundreds, of vultures. But in the uh, Tibetan rite that I write about in The Abominable, they don't just lay the body out for the birds. There is actually a cast of people who, uh, this was a family. My American gets to witness this funeral. He thought he was just going to some sort of Buddhist rite. But what he saw was uh, father, son, and grandson who break up the body, the newly dead body, chop it into bits, tear it apart, and throw it to the birds. And that's true. And in the book, it suggested that that cultural practice got started because the ground is frozen. 
uh, is too frozen to bury people most of the year, right? That's what the, the Europeans assure themselves of. Yeah, that's what they believe. And it is a hard tundra most of the year at that part of Tibet. Another element of this book is there are uh, Germans, sort of Nazi characters, uh, in the lead-up to World War II. How did you uh, get the idea to incorporate that um, that element into the book? Well, that was that came almost first. Uh, that is part of the title, The Abominable. When people ask if there's a scary, hairy, abominable snowman in a book, I, I tell them there's something worse. There's something much worse, more abominable. And my research was interesting because uh, it was 19, early 1920s Nazis. You know, 1930s Nazis, once they'd taken over, when they're almost in power is one thing. But these proto-Nazis, the early 1924 uh, ones, were very interesting to me. I have my uh, two of my three characters, uh, the deacon he's called, and Jake, go to Munich to meet with German climbers because they had been near the mountain when Lord Bromley disappeared. And so there's a lot there about German climbing and the techniques that they were creating ice hammers and so forth, 12-point crampons. But they were also, this group was in the same beer hall where the year before Hitler had led his putsch, his attempt, attempted takeover of the government. And he'd been sent to jail, but he was treated like a king. So already the Nazis were a vital movement in Germany. And some of these world-class climbers were also fanatical Nazis. I thought it was really well done the way that you, I mean, I think there would be a tendency when writing about Nazis to um, have the characters know more than they would at the time, but your uh, narrator, Jake, is really, he's really pretty dense about what the Nazis believe and uh, why it's significant that characters are Jews and stuff like that. Yeah, it's 1924 when he goes to Germany to see them, 1925 when the Germans become a plot element in Tibet, and Jake is an American. He's just not very knowledgeable about European politics. But even Europeans weren't. They, the Nazi party was such a small thing uh, amidst um, a terrible depression. Long before the depression hit the rest of Europe and the United States, uh, Germany, you probably remember, had hyperinflation. So in 1923, uh, it would cost one German mark to get in to see a movie. And by early 1924, it was 10,000 marks. And by late in 1924, at the time, my three climbers go into um, go to Austria to meet these people. It hadn't been uh, annexed yet, so it was still Austria. But uh, at that point, it was over 2 million marks to buy a movie ticket. People carried money around in, in wheelbarrows, literally, but it wasn't worth anything. Only something like silver or gold, something you could sell, was worth anything. That's the environment that Hitler and the Nazis came out of. People had tasted a type of complete collapse of their economy that, in a sense, America never did have. Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought it was interesting what you were saying about monsters because I, I read this book and I felt that it was fairly ambiguous for most of the book whether or not there would turn out to be yetis uh, living in the Himalayas. And uh, when I was about two-thirds of the way through the book, I read the, ja the jacket copy. And I felt that that kind of gave the game away a little bit. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Should people avoid the jacket copy? or? I always think people should avoid jacket copy. Yeah. <laughs> and reviews. And, you know, when, when you work hard on a 700-page in-print book to keep certain things, if not 
totally concealed, at least very ambiguous, ambivalent, hidden, and then to have it, you know, given away in a throwaway sentence somebody else writes makes me pull my hair out in great clumps. Mm. But uh, I'm uh, the ambiguity about whether or not there are these yeti creatures up in the hills at the base of uh, Everest was supposed to last through most of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the frame story, the Dan Simmons character mentions that in the early stages of conceiving the book, he considered writing about, quote, uh, giant mutant killer penguins, end quote. Uh, were you really considering that? No, <laughs> but it came down to that because uh, years before I wrote uh, the novel that, that actually got in the New York Times bestseller list, The Terror, about an Arctic expedition, a true one that disappeared in 1845, so John Franklin expedition, I'd been hunting for some way to write about the Antarctic, because that had been my interest since 1958. I was a little kid. They had the International Geophysical Year where they created American bases down there in the Antarctic. And that interest has never waned for me. Just the great, uh, glorious tales of the endeavor and, and all of the explorers, even the ones that uh, weren't too smart and died down there. But I wanted to find something scary set in Antarctica. But the the biggest, scariest animal I could find was a penguin. So I made a joke to my editor about a killer penguin. And that's when I stumbled across a footnote that led me to another footnote that told me about the John Franklin expedition disappearing with no trace in the Arctic, two ships, 127 men. Uh, Still, they've never found the ship. Still, they've never found out what happened to 124 of those men. Still a complete mystery when you get right down to it. Uh, all the answers have been put forward and then put on TV shows like Nova have been debunked. You know, it wasn't food poisoning. We know now. What happened to them? Um, where are the ships? And that fascinated me. And I figured, well, the poles are pretty much alike. No, no land masses up there. But they were close enough to Canada. They actually got on some gravel spits. So it led me to write The Terror instead about 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting because there are certainly parallels between the terror and the abominable in terms of you have a group of people making their way across a frozen landscape, possibly stalked by monsters. Do you see the abominable as sort of a spiritual successor or somehow related to the terror? I don't mind the phrase spiritual successor. I like that. Uh, but somebody, um, I forget whom, some reviewer, uh, could have been European, said, this is Dan Simmons's other cold book. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I like that cold book. So I guess the terror was first and the abominables also. They are pretty cold for a good bit of the novel. Uh, so speaking of the terror, um, what's the current status of the TV adaptation of that? Well, what happened was that um, with the terror, there was option by AMC Movie Channel with Ridley Scott's Scott Free Production Company willing to do it and Ridley Scott supposedly offering to direct at least the first episode and oversee the script work. They are looking at six properties I know of and they'll choose two. And I don't think I'll have to wait too long because October this month is where they're making that choice. So uh, it has the drawback and the terror of my novel of being expensive. You know, there'll be a lot of money up front at least for the set and so forth, the green screen work. On the other hand, as somebody at AMC said recently, we like going with things that are not only unusual, but unique. And the terror had unique going for it. So that's where I'll stake my hopes. And is there any other news on any of the, any of the other film projects based on your other works? 
there is, but nothing that I can crew about in detail. But I'm very happy right now with uh, the producer and director interest in The Abominable. Um, I'm hoping that uh, there, there will be an announcement about that uh, in the next month. Of course, uh, I've had dozens of my things optioned. Uh, as I said, I had one film that I did a script for come within a few weeks of being shot. All the locations scouted, all the costumes made, the actors hired. You know, so I never believe it's going to happen until I'm eating popcorn watching it on a screen. But the abominable is a real possibility. And there's an even uh, more urgent one that uh, is building up to a real possibility, which is The Crook Factory. Uh, my novel about 1942, Hemingway staying in Cuba to play spy. That's what he called his counter-espionage group, The Crook Factory. And that's had a very interesting history. And uh, I wish I could name the, the two actors who are trying to get it done next year. But it, it has script. It has the actors. They're agreeing on a director. And it has a studio. So if it's not announced soon, I'm going to just hold my breath and kick my heels on the floor out of frustration. Uh, so could you just talk a little bit about your history as a horror fan? Uh, like, how did you first get involved in horror, and uh, when did you first start writing it? Well, I started, uh, my first novel was Song of Cali, which came out in 1985. And it could have been interpreted in any one of half a dozen ways in terms of genre. I wrote it as not necessarily a supernatural novel. Everything in it could be explained one way or the other. Uh, but it won the World Fantasy Award. And I've never written any fantasy, I think, except uh, when I did an homage to Jack Vance a couple of years ago. I did a novella. But after winning the World Fantasy Award, I had three books come out in the same year, 1989. One was science fiction, Hyperion. One was mainstream, Phases of Gravity. And the third was a huge horror novel called Carrying Comfort about mind vampires. And after that, I had some contract offers to write horror, so I was writing horror novels and enjoying it. I've loved uh, the genre, both in movies and, and reading good horror since I was a kid, so I enjoyed writing it. My publisher at the time, Putnam, was saying I was the crown prince of horror, which I had to laugh at because uh, presumably that means uh, I'm writing Stephen King's footprints. And by then, he and I were friends, and we were born just a few months apart, so I'm no prince. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed the years that I did write horror novels. And uh, still, in many of my books, no matter how they're shelved in terms of genre, there's usually something I want unsettling, some frisson that bothers the reader a little bit. And I don't mean by just grossing them out. Biologically, I dislike that in films and so forth. I, I want them to be made feeling unsettled. So it doesn't matter what the genre is, I still keep coming back to horror. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and uh, Karen Comfort that you mentioned, I saw on your website that Stephen King called that one of the three greatest horror novels of the 20th century. And you mentioned that you guys are friends. Have, have you talked to him about that book? And what is it that he uh, liked about it so much? No, I haven't talked to him about it. I haven't seen him uh, for several years. Uh, we, uh, we exchange advanced reading copies and so forth. And uh, so he hasn't been too specific. The first time I met him was right after I did um, Summer of Night, which was my kid book, growing up 11 years old in a small town in Illinois. And it's been compared a lot to it. 
his book, his kid book. He does a lot of kid books, but I hadn't read it. Steve had a chance to read my Summer of Night, and so we knew the differences between the two. So, um, but other people thought, oh, I'm, you know, copying Stephen King's book. We were able to compare notes though, because being almost the same age, we're a few months apart on our birthdays. We were scared by the same movies, sort of encountered the same paperback novels at the same age, you know, put it aside for certain years when we, when we got to older college and so forth and came back to it. So it was fun talking to him and comparing notes on what formed us in terms of what we like to write, what scares us, and uh, what we hope will scare other people. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, what were some of those formative influences for that were, that were true of both of you? Um a lot of B movies, when it comes right down to it, uh, when we were really young, things like uh, even a promo on TV for something I didn't go see, uh, like the creature from the Black Lagoon, where it's swimming under the the woman swimming on the surface in the clear, you know, Florida springs water, but the creature swimming just beneath her, his claws almost touching her. We both. Uh, said that was something that just bothered the heck out of us. Also, the idea of the blob, which I never saw as a kid. I just saw a TV trailer for it. The idea of something come under your door uh, or can ooze through a crack in the, you know, between window panes it just scared the crap out of me as a kid. It turned out that it bothered King quite a bit, too. Um, I did want to ask you, I mean, I read your, uh, your first published short story, The River Sticks Runs Upstream, years ago, and that was certainly, I've never forgotten that story. And I don't know if you consider that a horror story or not. It's, it's certainly a very unsettling story. Um, but you said, that, uh, you said that when you wrote it, that you knew it was going to be your first published story. And I was just wondering like, what that felt like, or how did you know that that was going to be your first published story? That sounds pretentious, but uh, I guess writers have hunches they can bank and really count on. And that was one for me. Um, my wife on my 30th birthday, 1978, surprised me with a birthday gift of a, a rehabilitated uh, electric typewriter. It was an Olivetti. had the tiniest keys in the universe. Even my tiny fingertips were way too big for it. But the typewriter, the typewriter card, she put curtains on the window of this. We had about a 900-square-foot home, but she gave me a place to write. And so for several years, I was concentrating on writing for publication while I was teaching full-time. I loved teaching. I was teaching elementary school, sixth graders, just down the street from our little house. So I was using weekends and mornings and evenings. And in uh, the summer of 1979, I gave her a gift of going to the main photographic workshop. And I was staying at her parents' house in Buffalo, New York, while she was learning photography in Maine. And when I wrote the first paragraph of The River Sticks Runs Upstream, I just stopped. And for all of the stories I'd I'd written, scores and scores, I just had a feeling that this is one. This will be published someday. And I suppose we can have that feeling a million times and it doesn't happen, but as it turned out, that (laughs) was my first published story. Uh, So the story was critiqued by Harlan Ellison, uh, for people who don't know the story behind that, do you, do you want to just talk about what happened there? Uh, what happened there has become legend in its own little circles. Um, in the spring of 1981, uh, I was giving up trying to write for publication because I'd had three stories accepted, Galaxy, Galileo, and I forget the third magazine, and they'd all gone under before they could pay me. I was killing off all my favorite magazines. 
And we found out uh, in the spring of 81 that Karen was pregnant with what happened, turned out to be our only child, Jane. And I just felt, I don't need to use up, you know, all of our spare time with me away writing, so I'll give it up. But found this little ad in Writer's Digest that there was a writer's workshop in central Colorado, and I had several people that I had read and would like to listen to. One was Edward Bryant. I knew his science fiction stories. Another was George R. R. Martin, who was mostly into SF in those days. Um, there was a... Um, I can't think of her name. I'm sorry. She wrote, I never promised you a rose garden under the pseudonym of Hannah Green. And there was Harlan Ellison, whom I'd read. And so that was my goodbye to writing treat, was to go off to this one-week workshop. I think it was six days. It wasn't very expensive. But you had to bring a manuscript. I didn't want my work critiqued. But I brought the manuscript. Uh, River Sticks runs upstream. And what became rather famous and infamous was how tough Harlan Ellison was on the people there, especially an older gentleman. I say he's older. He's about five years younger than I am now. But Harlan, just ask him, you know, how long have you been trying to write? And the gentleman said, this is my, I've written 64 novels. And then Harlan just said, sir, you're not a writer. I would like to tell you you were, and I'm sure people have, but you are not, and you never will be a writer. And he just eviscerated, in gentle terms, this older guy, who took it well. But then uh, we were there were people who left during the break who didn't come back. I mean, that place emptied out. We were afraid of Harlan Ellison. But the next story was mine. And uh, he wasn't doing it for effect. That I know. I've known Harlan ever since. He liked that story a lot. He told the people why it worked. And then he, he gave a little speech where he said, Mr. Simmons, you're a writer. Whether you ever write anything else again or not doesn't matter because you are a writer. You hear the music, and for those who hear the music, they should follow it if they can. He said, and most of you here think that I savaged that poor man, and he pointed at the older gentleman, and anointed this man, and he pointed at me. But he said, you've got it turned around. He said, because I've just condemned Simmons to a lifetime of too much work, of movies missed, of weekends with family lost, with always too little money because writing pays so little, with, you know, problems in marriage because the writing always comes first. And he gave the whole list, including if there's a modicum of success, having 50 other writers wanting something from you, you know, like leeches hanging off you. And most of what he said was, was right on the money. And so he ended it with saying, and Mr. Simmons may enter your short story in the Twilight Zone magazine short story contest for unpublished writers. And as Harlan said in his introduction he wrote for me, he said, and everyone in the room fainted. (laughs) And it was just about that good. There were over 15,000 entries in the Twilight Zone magazine. I tied for first place. And I would have won, except one of the judges was Harlan Ellison, so he recused himself. Oh, no. So that was the beginning of my professional career. Well, you, you say he was pretty much on the money. Do you, do you feel, I mean, because <laughs> in the introduction, he sort of says, he makes it sound like he's dooming you to the life of a writer. Do you, do you feel like he's doomed you or are you just pretty, I mean, you must be pretty happy with how things turned out, right? I love being a writer. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to quote Peter DeVries or somebody saying, I love being a writer. It's a paperwork I can't stand. I love the process of writing, especially of researching. That's what gives me great joy in these historical based novels. Um, but this um, 
the Abominable will be, if I haven't lost count, it will be my 28th book. And most of those, about 24 of them at least, have been novels. And most of those have been rather large and deeply researched. And I have about a year to produce each one, which means you're researching maybe two books ahead. So you're constantly researching while you're writing another novel, which also demands its ongoing research. And I have to admit, I'm I'm feeling a little weary. As much as I love it, I wouldn't mind being like some one of these big name writers who puts a book out every five years or so. Mm-hmm. Well, it was it was funny. I mean, in um in that introduction too, he he says that when you turned in that story, the river sticks runs upstream. That he says, uh, who who has the the hubris, the unmitigated gall to turn in a story of five thousand words to this workshop? Show yourself, Simmons. At that point, I was slumping under the sea trying to hide. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, but uh, I mean, your books. I mean, it sounds like it's sort of been a a, a trend for you to write long, uh, even uh, you know, from your earliest days to now. Do you ever think about writing shorter books, or are you just uh, uh, in love with the, the the longer books? What I have to do is choose something that I don't enjoy researching so much. <laughs> Uh, there's a certain way I write scenes that make things run long. But I, I have my short novel. Song of Kelly is a, a short novel. Uh, there are others, Phases of Gravity. And I didn't outgrow writing short. I just like the larger canvas. It's one of the reasons I turned to science fiction when I did. But I also have this little Joe Kurtz noir hardboiled series, and those are short books. And I actually want to write another one of those because it's short, it's contained, it's mean as sin, and it's lean. And, uh, you know, it's just time to do that instead of research uh, for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in terms of the horror field generally, I'll never forget, I saw Peter Straub on a panel years ago. And he, at that time, he had just been editing uh, an anthology for the Horror Writers Association. And he said that reading all the submissions, he was just sort of shocked and disheartened by uh, the lack of literary ambition in so many of these horror stories. And just, I was just wondering, as, as a horror writer, do you, what do you think about kind of the health of the horror field generally? Do you think that there is a particular problem of a lack of literary ambition in the horror field specifically? I'll broaden it a little bit because I think that's the bane of most genres is that they set separate and unequal standards for themselves, the writers, editors, and so forth. And I admit I don't read much horror anymore for that reason. Uh, I know part of the reason for there being too many bad horror novels out, and that is editorial at certain publishers and so forth, that figured if a little salt is good, then tons of salt much be better, and they published everything for years. That's tapered off quite a bit. But there's a certain self-lowering of ambition and standards that I hate, and I know Peter Straub hates it. Uh, and It's been a pleasure getting to know writers like Peter Straub, you know, in a career. That's one of the great benefits of becoming a writer. I didn't really think about way back when I met Harlan, just getting to know writers you respect a lot. And it was actually Peter Straub's ghost story that made me write my first two horror novels. I liked the ambition that he put into it. I liked the literary connections he was able to use without, you know, being heavy-handed. So as long as there are people like Straub writing, I think the quality of horror will always be high. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a horror story, another horror story of yours that I, I really, really enjoyed was a, a story called This Year's Class Picture uh, that I read in John's anthology, The Living Dead, a zombie anthology. 
And it was funny because we followed the reviews of that book, obviously, after it came out. And I don't think I ever saw a negative review of that story. It seems like every review, the reviewer uh, enjoyed that story. So I was just wondering if you could talk about just how, where did that story come from? Uh, how did you come to write it? Well, I was invited to write a zombie story. And I had uh, great hesitation about doing so because there's a certain story arc in almost all zombie tales. And uh, this was fairly early on, as you well know, in the zombie um, exponential growth of zombieism. But I wanted to write that one because I was a teacher, and especially because my daughter had a second grade teacher named Miss Geisler, whom I felt represented everything good about teaching and elementary teaching and adults who were just perfect for children at a certain age. And I wanted to put a teacher like that into a zombie environment. And I know damn well what she'd be doing, that she'd be trying to teach zombie children. And it sounds like such an absurd situation. But that little story, I think it won five awards. And uh, it also was put on as a one-woman show in France on stage and did well, I'm told. And uh, I couldn't imagine a zombie story that would make you feel good at the end. Because really, the only thing you can do after the zombie apocalypse is survive, right? So what I wanted to do is show this teacher who is not going to give up her life's profession just because she has to shackle the children and put them in irons and, you know, use a cattle prod type thing to move them around and take them out the recess. So I enjoyed writing the story and glad I got the opportunity. It was interesting, you know, one of the first uh, authors we interviewed on this podcast was uh, Sherry Priest, and she had been a teacher. And she said that she thought being a teacher was the best preparation for becoming a horror writer because there's nothing creepier than little children. <laughs> I never say that. I like <laughs> I love my years as a teacher. But I, what prepared me a little bit was uh, two years. Uh, I was teaching fourth grade in a small town in Missouri in 1971. 70, 71, and then again about 19, in the early 80s, teaching out here in Colorado, I had this blank half hour after lunch with none of the subjects would fit, and so I started telling a story, first day of school, and uh, I told the same story these two times, a decade apart, changed the names and the plot and so forth, but I realized that telling 35 minutes or so of story a day for 182 days would be about a 4,000-page novel. But the kids became mesmerized. Our walls became, instead of, you know, work being put up on the, the boards, it was the maps of where our characters were going, Jernisavian, the Neocat, and Rawl, the uh, blue centaur. And there was this terrible monster in the center of the story called the Shrike. So when I started writing science fiction, I took the Shrike out of this story that I told twice over 18 years of teaching, 182 days of telling an oral tale. And to tell you the truth, both times, fourth grade and sixth grade, the day we finished the story, and the last day of school after class picnic, all the kids started crying. The story was over. But I, I, I love the idea that for my four science fiction novels, the Hyperion novels, Hyperion Cantos, the only people that know the full story, gigantic epic tale, are these kids from 1971, Missouri, and 1980, Colorado. And so the Shrike in that story, it had the, the steel barbed body and the forearms and all that stuff? It was the Shrike, and it moved through time and space. It was unbeatable. 
<laughs> but I had a three-foot-tall cat, Neil cat, an intelligent cat with hands instead of paws beaded <laughs> in a giant stadium in this uh, town that was an ongoing fair year-round. It was on the Planet Garden and with the kids' tycoon glee. But elements of that story, like they, they flew away from their home on a hawking mat, and I've used that phrase and dozens of others from that, that oral tale. Hmm. So, you know, the Shrek is one of your best-loved uh, creations, and when we were asking our listeners uh, what sort of questions we might want to ask you, uh, somebody noted that, uh, quote, that monster is fucking horrifying, end quote. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you came up with the Shrek and what you think makes it so scary? Well, the the uh, barbs, the barb teeth, the red eyes, the claws, the spikes, and all that, by the way, I had an ex-sixth-grade student of mine who became a well-known sculptor. I commissioned her later to do an eight-foot-tall sculpture of the Shrike, which is up at our mountain cabin in the woods there, with occasional birds and squirrels impaled on it. Mm-hmm. But uh, that part of the Shrike was just a regular monster. The part that moved me was the fact that it could move through time and space uh, so that you could you can't catch it, you can't see it coming. That probably goes back to that childhood fear I discussed with Stephen King about something like the blob or our favorite part of Dracula, by the way. Our favorite part of the vampire is when he turns into a mist and comes under a door. So if the Shrike can simply appear next to you, no matter where you've gone to hide, that part frightened me. And it's implacable. It can't be stopped. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be communicated with. And the idea that it carries part of you to impale on its tree of souls was sort of poetically frightening to me. I think also what makes it so scary is just that it's so mysterious that with a, a vampire or something, you know that it wants your blood, whatever, but the Shrike, you don't know what it wants, you don't know anything really about it. It's just this, it's, it's, the, it's the unknown that's so scary about it. Yes, it has some mission, uh, and it's moving backward in time along with these time tunes, which is an odd thought in itself. It's something anti-entropic. It's you know, it comes from the future, but is in moving backward in time to our time. And the more mystery you can put around something, the more frightening it is, I think. That's why I love Shirley Jackson, especially Haunting of Hill House. Nothing is definitely explained. Everything is suggested. Uh, so speaking of that uh, Shrike sculpture you have, to, does that thing uh, scare off burglars? Uh, well, it's in the woods and a huge property, so we haven't had any burglary mm-hmm. yet, but maybe the strike's the reason for it. I know it scared off, uh, for a while it was in our backyard in the town where we live here, and my wife didn't like looking at it out the kitchen window every day, so we moved it up to the mountain cabin. But some kid was crawling over our fence and taking this circuitous shortcut home from school going over three fences. And then one day, uh, we saw there was snow and he tried it over our fences, and we saw the steps, footsteps in the snow coming into the area of the yard where the strike was, and then these these steps far apart as he ran straight back and jumped back over <laughs> the other way. So it worked as a burglar alarm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so in The Abominable, you mentioned that during the First World War, the British government attempted to recruit famous authors, uh, including H.G. Wells, Arthur Conan Doyle, and J.M. Barry, to become pro-war propagandists. Yes. First, how did you come across that? historical facts, and just how do you feel about the authors who participated in that program? Um, I can't uh, name the book. I'd have to go look at my giant shelf of uh, research books for The Abominable. It could have been one of the more recent books written. I had run across the fact years ago that the uh, propaganda ministry 
had approached these authors, but in a more recent book, I got their names and the dates of the meetings and what they did and what they edited, what they wrote, and uh, I find it outrageous. I mean, you you try to help your country in time of war, but what they were doing was just pure lying to the British people about not only the horrors of trench warfare over there, but about the number of casualties and everything else. And uh, obviously, they would these writers felt they were doing what they could for the country with the skill they have as writers, but they really jumped into it. They they could have been working for Joseph Goebbels. They were so happily into the propaganda. And um, the top newspaper editors were too. It was a cabal, a conspiracy to keep the reality from the people. And of course, with all the um, mutilated, wounded men coming home, uh, it couldn't be kept secret for long. But even then, they lied about it. They lied about uh, the the type of warfare going on. Uh, they lied about the fact that it had just been static for two years, three years, four years in the same trenches. They lied about the fact that 20,000 Englishmen died before breakfast at the Somme. They, it wasn't just concealing bad news from the public. It was putting a false spin on it. And to the extent that these writers whom I admired did it, I'm just ashamed of them. Did, uh, did any authors refuse to go along with that? The only one I know of uh, was my poet Richard Davis Deacon from The Abominable, and he's fictional, so... <laughs> I'm sure they did. I just don't know who. I, yeah. I don't know any large names that said no. Hmm. Um, well, and kind of speaking of politics, I wanted to talk a little bit about your previous novel, Flashback. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it seems like, just from uh, reading commentary about it, it seems like a lot of people have viewed it as more overtly political than most of your books. Do you agree that it's a more overtly political book? And just what do you think about the reactions overall? Uh, well, which part of the reaction? Death threats? <laughs> the... Uh, the hmm. fatwa that was put out on me by a London imam, the uh, hundreds of, I'd give this a no-star if I could, uh, um, reviews and Amazon reviews, the personal letters saying, I used to read everything you wrote, but I'll never read anything by you again. I think there are a lot of confused people out there. Of course it's a political novel, it's a dystopian novel, but it's a dystopian novel about a time when a country, our country, quits looking forward and turns its eyes completely to the back because of this drug flashback, which 97% of the people are using, where they can relive the good parts of their life and ignore all the crap that's going on around them. And for those who think, I, I, I've been called a Nazi, I've been called a racist, people who have no idea of, of my life, uh, what I've done and how I've worked for civil rights throughout my life or what my politics have been and what Democratic candidates I've written speeches for. You know, I'm a racist and uh, a libertarian, which amuses me as if that's... I had a libertarian professor once, and he was pretty smart. It made some sense, but I'm no libertarian. They read the wrong version of Flashback. I should just let them all read the 1991 story that was published in Love Death. And because it was 1991... America went broke because of Ronald Reagan. And I have a, I have a young character, the same young character that's in the, in the 2010 novel, uh, who says, he acted like our grandfather, but the mofo drove us, made us broke, he ruined our country. So I'd be a hero to all the progressives who, you know, 
who say I'm not worth reading and I'm a bastard and so forth, if they read that version, I didn't care how America went broke. I just needed it broke so I could write this book. I needed a completely economically devastated United States so I could get my people on flashback and look at the at the effects of this idea of, of a nation turning its back on the future. I mean, when people are actually threatening you like that, do you how do you handle that as an author? Is there is there anything you can do or do you uh, I don't know, what's your response to that? No, there's there's nothing I can do. If I'm at a reading or something and somebody wants to attack me, you know, um, I'll suggest they read the 1991 version. But I also say, if you're going to vet, I, I don't argue with people now, but if I were to talk to somebody, I'd say, if you're going to vet every author you read, you're going to be very busy and you're not going to be reading many. Charles Dickens was an absolute misogynist who threw his wife of 22 years out in the cold and let her take nine of the ten kids while, um, I'm sorry, he let me gave her one kid while he kept the nine he liked. And so on, uh, Ernest Hemingway, I know well, I researched him for five years. He used the N-word in every other sentence. He was anti-Semitic to beat the band. You know, writers have feet of clay, and then when you are a writer and you meet a lot of them, you see that, especially when they're drunk at a convention. But, you know, they're not all bastards. A lot of them were just stuck in their day, stuck in their time. Uh, but you also have to judge what they're doing in their book. You, you can't call Mark Twain a racist for using the N-word in Huckleberry Finn. And that's my feeling about my book, Flashback. I wrote about what I had to write about, which was this economic devastation of America, so I could get to the important stuff. Actually, uh, speaking of Ernest Hemingway, in The Abominable, the Dan Simmons character mentions using Freedom of Information Act requests to get information about him. Is that I assume that's something that you actually have done? Yes. And it was wonderful stuff because it had only recently been declassified. This was from my book, The Crook Factory. And uh, I, I probably, I didn't like Hemingway before I started the book. It's one of the reasons I decided to write about him. I figure after three or four years of research, I might like him more or even less. I don't like bullies. And I found him so fascinating. But with the Freedom of Information Act, they were revealing how the FBI really was hovering over him and tapping his phone and following him, and in one case, preparing to kill him if they had to, uh, when he was doing this counter-espionage work on Cuba in 1942, which is what my novel's about. And it was because of things that he uncovered, just playing spy. And we've all heard that in his last days, Hemingway was paranoid because he was sure the FBI was following him. He was sure they were tapping his phone. This was in 1961 when he committed suicide. But they were following him. When he flew to the Mayo Clinic to get uh, treatment for depression, FBI agents landed there hours before him and talked to his doctor before he and his wife, before Hemingway and his wife did. So his paranoia had real foundations, most of which have been classified until very recently. So that uh, does it for our questions. Do you want to just uh, tell us what you're working on now, or do you have any upcoming projects you'd like to mention? Well, what I'm working on now and trying to finish in the next month after my book tour is a book called The Fifth Heart, and something I've been waiting to write for years. And when pressed to put it in one sentence, which is all I ever tell civilians, if a neighbor or something says, are you working on something now? I see, I'm writing a book right now about uh, Henry James and Sherlock Holmes coming to America in 1893 to solve the possible murder, or at least suicide, of Henry Adams' wife, Clover. 
and there's a pause, and 99 times out of 100, they'll say, did they really do that? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm having great fun with Henry James and Sherlock Holmes and other William Dean Howells and Mark Twain makes an appearance and so forth. This is a lot of fun, this book. Uh, All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Dan Simmons. His new book is called The Abominable. So Dan Simmons, thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot for the great questions, guys. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Dan Simmons for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, our panel topic today will be sex and horror. And unfortunately, John will not be joining us for this panel due to internet problems. But we are joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got Grady Hendricks, who you may remember from our panel on Choose Your Own Adventure books back in episode 93, and our panel on The Devil in Hell back in episode 50. He's the author of the books Occupy Space and Satan Loves You, and co-author of the comic book cookbook Dirt Candy. He's also one of the founders of the New York Asian Film Festival, which got him profiled by The New Yorker, who observed, Grady Hendricks doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would enjoy watching a man bite through his own arm while masturbating inside a burlap sack, but he is. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. And also joining us today for the first time is Jane Gates. She's the communications director for the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and her short fiction appears in magazines such as Ether Age Helios, Goldfish Grimm, and Embrain SF. And she's also edited several anthologies, including Rigor Amortis, a collection of zombie erotica. So, Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so the first thing I want to know is just, Grady, I never actually asked you about this man masturbating inside a burlap sack thing. So what is the story behind that? Oh, it's a, it, was a, it was a film we showed from Japan called Antenna about a missing child and the trauma it takes on her family over the years. Uh, and her brother deals with it by going to his lack of being able to feel anything by going to a therapist who has the helpful suggestion that he get inside a burlap bag and masturbate. And he bites through his arm because he enjoys it so much. So see, therapy works. <laughs> and so I guess, I mean, I've never been to your uh, film festival, but I gather there's lots of just totally crazy Japanese films that you show. Is sex a big part of those movies? Well, yes and no. I mean, we we go out of our way to show actual sex films sometimes. I mean, always very tasteful. Uh, But, you know, the number of crazy movies coming out of Japan is getting lower. uh, And the audience appetite for that stuff is getting sort of weaker. It's getting a little played out. We've discovered in the past, like, five years that if we absolutely positively do not want an audience to show up, we show a horror movie. People just don't go to Asian horror movies anymore. And they're doing terribly all across Asia as well right now. So why do you think that is? I don't know. I think because it's sort of a trend that got run into the ground post-99 when The Ring came out, you know, from Japan. Uh, And so many people ripped it off, and it was just such a thing for so long. I think everyone sort of is a little sick of it by now. Mm. Well, so do any any of the ones that you've watched stand out in terms of crazy sex or sexy monsters or anything like that? Well, I mean, there always is. Um... You know, there's less, I feel, uh, because I'm sure someone can make a case that I'm totally and completely wrong, that in terms of supernatural horror movies, there's less sort of sexual content 
in a lot of Asian movies that have supernatural horror in them, unless it's lifted from the West. You know, they're doing a possession thing or a Rosemary's Baby thing. The place where you actually find a lot of sort of like queasy congruence of like sex and violence and horror is usually in true crime thrillers. Um, because there's a lot in a lot of the industries, and especially the Chinese and Hong Kong film industries, and, and I guess Korea also. There's a, you know, there's just a very different cultural attitude towards rape and how to depict it on screen that for a Westerner, you can get very like squicked out by. Well, I guess, Jim, uh, why don't you come in here? Do you, uh, why don't you talk just about your sort of history as a horror fan and how do you feel about sex in horror? So the first horror book I actually read, I made the mistake of reading uh, late at night when I was supposed to be out taking care of the horses. And so I was sitting in a drafty ancient barn. And I really, I've never really been scared by much of anything in the way of horror books. But sitting in a drafty old barn late at night reading a, an Aztec-themed horror book kind of set a new bar for me. <laughs> so since then, you know, I kind of judge things like that. Like, am I literally afraid to turn out the light and go you know, somewhere else? But, but with rigor and mortis, I think was when I really started figuring out that for that horror for me is less about the blood and guts and gore and more about the psychological, you know, the thing just over your shoulder that you can't see, the suspense that just keeps going on for so long that your mind starts making stories up, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, well, why don't you mentioned your anthology, Rigor and Mortis. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, how'd that come about? I made a joke on Twitter, and this is a theme where I make a joke and then bad things start happening. And so it's, there are a few people who say that I just should stop having a sense of humor on social media. But basically, uh, a couple of friends were joking about how zombies were so played out. And this was, you know, four years ago or so. And I said something to the effect of, well, it's not over until, you know, there's an erotica collection about it. <laughs> Long story short, that kind of went through the stage of, that's a really good idea. Hey, I want to write a story for that. And so I thought I was safe. No publisher would ever touch it. And then someone comes up and goes, well, I know the guys at Edge really well, and they're interested in this. And I just was kind of screwed. So uh, give, us an, give us some examples of what kind of zombie, what, like, what is zombie erotica like? Give us some examples of that. The first, what we thought we would really get a lot of was, you know, the typical rape, non-consensual, all of that. And what we, and we got a few of those, but what we found we really got was actually almost, almost this bittersweet, you know, it's the till death do us part. Well, how about beyond that? You know, how are things going to keep going when you can't let go? Uh, what will you do to bring someone back that you love so much you cannot imagine life without them? So we had a bunch of that. We also had, uh, of course, the apocalyptic stuff, um, some revenge ones. We actually got a couple of Haitian-type zombie stories as well, one of which was absolutely beautiful because it was the story of a woman dealing with a man who was abusing her and her taking steps to defend herself and get her life back. So we were kind of surprised and really thrilled with the depth of stories we ended up getting. I think what worried me the most was the people who wrote in saying, oh, man, I've had this sitting on my hard drive forever. <laughs> you know, I didn't think I'd ever have anything to do with it. And going, you know, on one hand, I feel better about myself. On the other hand, wow, I never would have thought that was a thing. 
You know, it's so weird. I always find, like, horror erotica such a weird thing. To me, it's like ice cream on top of ice cream, because horror is so sexualized anyways in the first place. I mean, it's all, you know, horror and, like, sex are, you know, it's all, the, the language is the same. It's all night and darkness and physical contact and, you know, blood and mystery and moon and all that stuff. And, like, so then when you make it erotica, I'm like, oh, my God, it's so much. It's, like, the volume's so loud on the sex now. I mean, it seems like, yeah, I think that uh, horror, uh, erotica, and humor are all very closely entwined in my mind because they're all, you know, genres that rely on trying to produce a physiological response, you know, either an adrenaline rush or sexual arousal or laughter. And it seems like every, almost every horror movie I can think of is some combination of funny, scary, and sexy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, it's so... Uh... We, the, I think it's Dario Argento and Alfred Hitchcock both said uh, in, in different ways, I'm sure, and one in Italian, but that <laughs> basically audiences want to see beautiful women in danger, that that is art. That is what audiences will pay to see. And, you know, they're 100% right. I mean, what people want to see and what horror is ultimately is uh, a human body, you know, usually uh, in some form of sexualization in danger. And the more vulnerable it is, the better. I mean, when you think about like all the big horror movies uh, ever, and I mean, the books as well, they're all women in danger. I mean, Psycho, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, Alien, every single one of them is about a woman in increasing states of vulnerability, very young, pregnant, you know, like wearing short shorts uh, in space, who is in danger from something. I also think one of the big things is just with books, it's not quite the same issue. But I definitely think with movies, you've just got the basic, you know, uh, gender demographics of the industry. You know, you've got all the, the place for women in movies generally is as an actor. That's where they're well represented. A women, you know, are represented behind the camera, but very rarely as directors. I mean, I think the number is like, what, 2%. So you do have this weird power dynamic that's replicated on screen. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a director stalking his lead actor with this giant probing phallic camera <laughs> shooting a giant monster with a probing phallic knife stalking the actress. One thing that's really interesting, though, is they did, they've did they done a couple of studies on slasher movies and sort of gender representation and things like that in them. And the studies are weird. And I actually think most of them have real methodology flaws. But there's one that's really, really well done from like, gosh, 1998 or something. Basically, what it looked at was slasher movies, all slasher movies. That's all it looked at. Huge. It took a huge data pool of like 50 some odd movies, uh, you know, years randomized, all that stuff. And it discovered that men are killed more often in slasher movies and are killed more gruesomely. However, Violence, when it happens to women, was far more likely to happen in a sexualized situation. Uh, either she's having sex with her boyfriend or skinny dipping or in her underwear or something like that than it was to men. Well, I want to talk about this idea that slashers have this tendency to bust in and kill people while they're having sex. And I mean, I think that that's, you know, it's obviously just because you can get, you know, it's, it's titillating, right? But it seems like horror movies, they have this weird, weird tension where, they're setting out to titillate you, but the 
underlying message is that sex is bad and that people who have sex get punished for it. Um, have there ever been any horror movies where like sex protected you from the monster or, you know, it was actually like, it was like a sex positive slasher movie or anything like that? There have been some, I think, but, you know, it's become such a, you know, because when we're really talking about horror movies, I mean, we're mostly talking about the post-70s, like, big horror boom in film. And the weird thing is, I think that's just one of those parts, it's the same as, like, you know, vampires get killed by wooden stakes because the original, you know, text that sort of started the vampire mythology said that. So in horror movies people having sex are vulnerable to being killed because that's how they started out. And the reason they started out that way, though, was really practical. Um, Friday the 13th, I mean, those movies came out originally and were so successful, not because they were horror movies, really. Halloween as well. They came. The one reason they were largely successful is these independent producers were trying to replicate the success of teen sex comedies, which were cleaning up in regional like circuits across the country. Uh, swinging cheerleaders. I think the Van was one of them. And so, David Friedman, these other producers, you know, and Deborah Hill, they had these this idea that like. Oh, if we can combine the like sort of jiggle factor from those movies and put young people in the films, and then we have a killer sort of doing this stuff, that could be a really, you know, we'll just, we got all our elements. We're covering everything. You know, the girls will come to see the romance. The boys will come to see the killing and the boobs. Like, we, we got it all covered. And so it was almost an accident of production that that sort of wound up being what was offered. And then, you know, people loved it. I'd never thought of it before, but I almost wonder if maybe it's not even so much about you had sex, you will die, as that's one of the most, uh, the moments where you're so exposed, you're vulnerable, you're making this huge expression of trust in someone else, uh, you're making yourself vulnerable to them, and kind of just cashing in on that, like this this really intimate, safe moment suddenly is just ripped away, and so there's that emotional response there where you're really close to the character you're engaging with them and it's about as tied into them as I think you can get and then the you know the killer comes in there and suddenly it's the safe place that has just been completely destroyed well I think you're 100% right I mean that was the logic behind the most famous like nude killing in movie history in the U.S., which is the psycho shower scene. I mean, the whole reason, besides that Hitchcock was obsessed with bathrooms and always wanted to find a way <laughs> to get them on screen, was he thought it was taking a shower naked in the bathroom was the place where you were most completely and totally vulnerable. But does Jason really need to target you when you're vulnerable, seeing as he's this immortal, invincible zombie killing machine? He's not real. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to target people when their shirts are off because the producers want to get boobs on screen. <laughs> um, you know, I think one thing that's really interesting, though, is the two most famous American horror authors are notoriously sex adverse. I mean, Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft only in the most and, and King does in some books, but really the two of them only in the mo most sort of like subliminal way deal with sex at all. And yet those are the two giants of American horror fiction. 
I mean, H.P. Lovecraft is terrified of reproduction and miscegenation. And, you know, there's that uh, thing on the doorstep, you know, about the dude who has to kill his friend, who's possessed by a woman, who's also a man, like, and he's got some weird gender stuff going on. But, like, there is no sex in H.P. Lovecraft except the kind that produces horrible, like, you know, half-breed monsters that must be exterminated. And Stephen King, like, I mean, is virtually sexless in most of his books. Well, I mean, and but is that true, not just to them, but of horror generally that, um, or say literature, you know, horror and literature, uh, I mean, I think of Dracula and... Dracula is hugely sex. Right, but there's no actual sex in it, right? But like every, there's... No, but it's, it, yeah, but I mean, it's really, I mean, all Dracula, I mean, Dracula is basically the story of an old Europrast dude who comes to England, sucks on the men, sucks on the women, they get addicted to all this sucking, and then a bunch of dudes, including a Texan from America who talks over and over again about his giant Bowie knife and how he's going to use it to really like carve up Dracula, have to go and drive a stake through him. I mean, the whole book is the same language they use when Dracula attacks people in the book is the language they use in gothic novels for sex. I mean, it's bared breasts and people lapping at each other's chests and swooning and lapsing into unconsciousness and women with heavy lidded eyes and all this stuff. I mean, it's so and not to mention the fact that at the time. All these old aristocrats who were dried up and had no money in Europe, and especially in England, were marrying all these, like, young American women who were incredibly wealthy. And, you know, they were called the dollar princesses. So you had this thing where all these young sort of, you know, 20-year-old, 19-year-old, 18-year-old women were hooking up with these 50- and 60-year-old dudes who had a title, and the women had the money uh, that the guys wanted to suck off of and, you know, use to prop up their failing estates. Um, so, I mean... I you're right. There's not a lot of actual sex in Dracula, but Dracula is all about sex. And so is Carmilla, which was, I think, like 20 years earlier, the Sheridan Le Fanu book about the little girl vampire who, like, you know, basically falls in love with this other little girl. And I'm going to keep you with me forever and ever and we'll share a bed and never be apart. And I'll hold you all the time. I mean, it's very sexualized intentionally. So I think. Yeah, I mean. I was going to say, I read a, an analysis of Dracula one time where Dracula in the novel has these three spectral women, sidekicks sort of, who have no bodies below the waist. And this analysis was saying anyone at the time would have seen this as a, a metaphor for oral sex. That might be true. I mean, those are the ones who uh, totally throw down on, um, oh, geez, what's a Jonathan Harker? Um, and, and like a good gothic novel, as they close in on him, the, the writer averts their horrified gaze from this, either <laughs> sex or violence, we're not sure which, but something's going on we don't want to see. But, you know, and then you look at Frankenstein, though, which was like the, the beginning of the because that's right at the end of the 19th century. Then you look at Frankenstein, I mean, written by Mary Shelley. And it is very, um, uh, I don't want to say feminist, because that's got such a different word now. But I mean, you know, it's, it's written right in that vein of the vindication of the rights of women, in the sense that Frankenstein is all about that, that this urge to be free and be able to determine your own fate wasn't something you were given by politics or the law or anything, but a natural inborn urge. And that even if you stitch together a bunch of rotten, disgusting corpse flesh, it would want to be free. It would want to determine its own fate. It would want to have will. Uh, and so, I mean, it's not, but it's not sexual at all. It's a book that's remarkably unsexual in terms of actual, like, you know, that whole gothic swoony, you know, sucking on things. Well, except, I mean, the monster wants Dr. Frankenstein to make him a wife. 
And there's That's this, true. this weird That's section true. about, oh, well, what if they had monster children together? And, you know, like the idea that you could put someone together from spare parts and not perform a, um, what do you call it, tubal, tubal ligation. But, you know, Mary Shelley, I mean, that was her thing, though. And I guess I think of it so much as a political book more than a sexual book, but you're absolutely right. But then you can look at that in terms of, you know, this this has a right to breed and to reproduce and to seek marital happiness away from the laws of man, you know, and, and all human laws, um, you know, which I think is more of a political expression than a sexual one. But I agree. I forgot that he, he gets the mate. Well, and, and also, I mean, I think it's really central to Frankenstein, the idea that, I mean, it's a central message of the book is that bad things happen when you try to create life without sex, right? Without, uh, when men try to create. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When idiot men think they can do this shit, they get it all wrong. Um, see James, do you have any thoughts about any of these sort of classic horror sex in any of these classic horror novels? Not so much the classics, but you've got Clive Barker, Dean Koontz, some of those guys who are incredibly, i sexual in some of the stuff that they have uh even looking at some more recent ones like jonathan mayberry well what's what's dean Koontz's thing i've never actually read any of his and i know nothing what's his sort of approach to all this because clive barker i hear you on that i mean he he does write some sex dean Koontz um kind of is more like the one i read recently was odd thomas and it's basically this normal kid who works as a fry cook and uh, sees things, you know, sees basically all this psychic stuff, sees monsters. Um, and there's not a ton of explicit on-the-page sexual activity, so much as it kind of underlies every single thing he does. It's considered just, you know, a normal part of things. But then in some of the more horrific interactions, there's this intimacy there that kind of picks up and you know makes it all the more awful and intense because it's two characters that should not have that level of intimacy the killer and the victim you know and and i think maybe trying to make the metaphor there of you know sex is referred to as the little death well you have the real death and so those two things kind of end up being tied together emotionally well why don't we talk about uh, the author's contemporary authors who do put the most you know on screen sex in their books i mean laurel k hamilton would be the one the first one to come to mind for me uh, <laughs> one, one of my it was funny one of my friends handed me a laurel k hamilton book and she said uh like open this book to any page at random and i guarantee it'll be a sex scene and i was like oh come on and i did i'm like oh and it was you know well, it's interesting because a lot of people talk about how urban fantasy and Twilight isn't really horror, but I kind of think it is. When you've got vampires and werewolves and all that, whether the intent is to horrify you or not, those are all the toolkit of horror. I don't see how you can call it something different. I would say Kids Johnson. Uh, her story, Spar, I think is where, the, where this entire subject kind of uh, took a modern renaissance. Yeah, and for people who don't know that story, I, I once heard it memorably, dis- memorably described as art house tentacle porn. Yeah. I, I think part of it was that it elevated to an art form uh, several things that tended, at, you know, even at the time, to still be a little bit on the side of the lower, you know, form of things. Like, science fiction horror wasn't really a big thing. Um, it was definitely that it was erotic it was in close 
really close view. I mean, it's it's almost claustrophobic to read. And I think it was, like they've said, very art house, where it was this high concept telling of a really a very hentai, dirty, awful thing. And I think that just kind of was, you know, went, oh, hey, you know, we can actually take some of these things that typically are frowned on and make really amazing pieces out of them. Well, so great. I mean, earlier you mentioned uh, Dario Argento, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but my impression is that his oeuvre is basically he made a whole series of movies where he got his wife naked and had her killed, and then <laughs> like when that had sort of run its course, he made a whole series of movies in which he got his daughter naked and and had her killed. Well, I think that's a that's a yes from a totally gossipy Hollywood Babylon point of view. Absolutely. And I think that stuff is going on at the same time. But then again, you could also say in a movie like Phenomena, you know, he not only got Jennifer Connelly somewhat naked, but he got a monkey naked uh, (laughs) and had it kill. I mean, Dario Argento's movies are so, you know, I think because he's so comfortable or maybe uncomfortable with sex and because he's so upfront that he wants to see a pretty woman at her most vulnerable in danger but what's interesting about his movies is um you've got stuff like deep red with a male protagonist that's a very like you know it's a very strange movie very like all tied up in a lot of like gender and family issues but then you've got something like Suspiria which is really almost like a fairy tale about a ballet dancer being harassed by witches who ultimately defeats them because she's American I mean he just runs the gamut but yeah I mean I think because he's staged some spectacular deaths of women and that Dario Argento likes to pick fights and say things like, yeah, so what? I want to see a beautiful woman get her head chopped off. That, yeah, he does become a lightning rod for a lot of that stuff. But so, I mean, do you think if women were directing that we would still see women portrayed the same way in movies, that that's just intrinsic to horror, as you seem to be suggesting? Or do you think there would be a big sea change if half the well, directors you know, were women. It, it's hard to tell because, you know, at this point, the genre is so entrenched. You know what I mean? The, the rules are so established. I mean, you look at, uh, gosh, and I can't remember her name, who directed uh, Slumber Party Massacre or Slumber Party Massacre 2 or maybe both, which is a, a slasher movie, albeit a trippy one. Or um, there's a woman who is a downtown sort of art personality who directed uh, Blood Games, which is probably the only rape revenge movie you'll ever see featuring a women's softball team. Um, and it's like, you know, and they're both very standard sort of slasher movies. Well, I mean, earlier we were talking about, you know, uh, somebody busting in on you when you're having sex and killing you. But there's a similar sort of thing in horror movies where the person you're having sex with is the one who kills you or is trying to kill you. Um, so, hmm. so like a basic instinct, right. It was the first thing that comes to mind for me, although I don't know if that's technically a horror movie, but you have the whole, like the legend of the succubus and, uh, sure. there's this the incubus, the succubus. Yeah. There's a story, a really good story, a story I really like by Brian Lumley called Necros that deals with that sort of thing. Uh, what do you guys think about that idea of your lover turning out to be the, the killer or the monster? Well, I was just going to say, how many women have had exactly that where someone that they were dating or in love with or married to was actually the monster in their lives? I mean, domestic violence is this huge epidemic. And it's something that, you know, it's, it's bad enough everywhere, but living in the South for a few years, it's exponentially worse there. It's actually, uh, you know, one of, as I recall, one of the leading causes of female death in the South. So I think maybe that there's 
kind of that touch on real life too that ties it in you know ties horror into the subconscious and makes it so it makes the tropes so prevalent well it's funny because i think when you're a little kid i mean when we're all like you know we haven't gone through puberty we're five or six years old or whatever boys and girls get told to be scared of basically the same things matches getting in cars with strangers that kind of thing uh you know drinking bleach um uncle harry uh but when you get a little older like once you go through puberty i mean i'm a dude i i uh you may not be able to tell from my whiny nasal voice but i am uh and when i was in sort of high school and post 13 i mean the dangers for me were not personal okay i could get a girl pregnant eh, okay uh you know but that was sort of it uh, you know, and then it was drunk driving and stuff like drugs and things like that. But for women, it's you could get raped. Your boyfriend could get you pregnant. These horrible things could happen to your body. You know, these horrible things could be done to you by your boyfriend. Like, and I and I think sort of those are the folk tales that we get now. You know, oh, there was this girl and she had sex with this guy at a party or she drank too much and she wound up getting passed around the football team and she woke up and she had a monster baby inside of her. Like, it's... It's, those are the folk tales, and for women, they're so personal. They're all about things getting done to you by people you know. You know, horror movies. There's this tendency, or there's this sort of inevitable, uh, sort of gravitational pull towards some grand guignol ending, you know, involving lots of blood and bodies on the ground and stuff. And I mean, you mentioned um, revenge. Great, you mentioned revenge. <laughs> the, what was it? The cheerleader, right. cheerleader revenge thing. Uh, I just, oh, right. Like, it seems like nobody in a horror movie ever gets a restraining order and calls the police, like, you know, moves to a different state, you know, that it's, it's always some really... Well, usually, well, usually it depends, because if it's a slasher movie, there's sort of a ritualistic thing where you get warned away by a local, but then you keep going, and then bad things happen anyways when you violate these, like, things. But if it's a stalker movie or a... um you know, like Basic Instinct or The Stepfather or, you know, a movie where a woman's sort of being attacked by a real human being. Um, usually there is sort of ritual. They go, they go to the police. The police don't believe them. Something happens. The police can't do anything. You know, they do go through the, the steps of showing you that there is no help for this person. This person is isolated and alone and either has to be to deal with it on their own or be killed. Like, you know, there's, there's, they, they can't give them another way out. So they do sort of ritualistically strip away all those options in thrillers. But, but so, and then when you get into monster movies and stuff, I mean, who do you turn to for help? There's really no one, you know, you've got a horrible, alien tumor monster growing in you know, in you and it's killing you and making you crazy where do you go i don't know <laughs> uh the alien tumor monster removal clinic yeah here in a david cronenberg <laughs> movie there is no hope <laughs> expect strange orifices to grow shortly well that's another i mean that's you know the i mean probably the most famous science fiction horror franchise is the alien franchise and the first alien movie there's no sex in, you know there's no actual sex in it but it's one of the most sexual movies you've ever seen and that was totally by design that the I saw one of the screenwriters saying that he wanted to put every sexual thing that might make someone uncomfortable all in this one movie. Mission accomplished. <laughs> and then they hired H.R. Giger. I was going to say, I mean, you, you take a movie like that and then you hire one of the most explicit, infamous uh, horror artists. I mean, I love his work. It's incredible. 
And there's another thing, too. I mean, horror is such a massive genre. I mean, you've got things like the David Cronenberg movies, where who the hell knows where those fit into this discussion? I mean, this whole, like, body horror thing, um, or a movie like Possession or something, you know? Uh, Or a movie like, I don't know if either of you have seen The Entity with Barbara Hershey, uh, which was a book at first. I mean, it's basically, it's it's supposed to be based on a true story. The same way I'm sure the Amityville Horror is based on true story. But (laughs) it's basically a woman who said that a ghost was sexually attacking her. And, you know, basically it would just show up in her house and and rape her uh, every night, every other night. And, um, you know, the movie is basically this horrible thing where it's like Barbara Hershey is like attacked again and again and again by this invisible force. And at first no one believes her. And then they think she's making these injuries on herself. And then finally someone comes and sees it. Then they can't believe what they see. Then they have to deal with it. And they use science, which is nice. But um, but it's interesting that once you get away from the slasher movies, you're in a lot more queasy territory in terms of like, you know, people being attacked and having agency and fighting back. Because it's usually pretty hopeless. I mean, where's the hope in a David Cronenberg movie? Once you become new flesh, you're like, you're done. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, Grady, are there any horror movies where the sex is actually sexy? Or is sex, is it, it just inevitable in a horror movie that the sex is only going to be used to make you uncomfortable? Well, I gotta say, I mean, it kind of depends on what turns you on. I mean, I think Jane could point out that, um, like, to me, I don't find dead people having sex very romantic or erotic. But I'm sure in the zombie erotica anthology, there are people who manage to make it so. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with the presentation. Funny story, just as a brief moment of, you know, the things that actually happened in my life based on this anthology that I did. Um, I was with Blake Charlton after a Writers with Drinks event in San Francisco, and we went to this really, really nice uh, coffee house because we hadn't seen each other in a while, so we we're going to catch up. And Blake has this voice that just carries beautifully. I mean, it's amazing. And we're just talking about random stuff, and so, and then he t- we were with a couple of other people, and Blake turns to me and goes, so, James, as a necrophiliac, and he says it in this beautifully carrying sort of voice, Right as the level in the this three-star cafe just drops down, and then it just goes dead silent. And we're just sitting there, just trying not to just slide under the table. You were the most interesting person who'd walked in there all night. <laughs> I, yeah, but, you know, it's I, I don't even know at that point if the collection was so much about, you know, the the erotic aspect of it. I think that was almost just propping it up as a reason to show uh, for a lot of the authors uh, more of the romance sort of thing. But, you know, I I also think that maybe sex is something that sometimes it doesn't matter what the actual pieces are. It's about the things around it and what sort of things you respond to. So I find absolutely nothing i in the collection that I, I edited as even remotely interesting to me in that sense. But I am sure that there are people who look at it and go, this, you know, this love that is crossing over the barrier of life and death, that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I mean, think on the one hand, you've got Ghost, you know, which is, which is a romance about a, between a, a, a Demi Moore and a, and a ghost, Patrick Swayze which, you know, is really, like, done, like, a sort of erotic, soft-focused, kind of romantic, beautiful kind of thing. 
And you could take that exact same story and turn it into Hellraiser, basically. You know, it's a dead guy and a living woman. Well, there's that strange scene in Ghost where Patrick Swayze possesses um, Whoopi Goldberg's body so he can make out with Demi Moore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, that's one of the things with horror is so much of this stuff is so it goes back so far. I mean, you know, like, like, there's possession and ghosts. And I mean, this stuff's all like just culturally been around and it, for us for hundreds of years. And then you start mixing things up and, you know, like putting this gender with this cult trope and this trope with this and in this situation and Patrick Swayze's and Whoopi Goldberg making out with Demi Moore. And it starts to get very weird. And it's like, I think you can't even plot it on a map at a certain point. It just, you know, ultimately, as I mean, I think Clive Barker would make the, the statement that horror is about and is about the mutability of flesh and desire and passion into, you know, destructive or uh, reproductive ends with hitting all points in the middle. And I mean, it is, it's a big tent and it's full of weirdos and, and weird bodies and freaky flesh and appendages and ghosts and dead and living and necrophilia and good necrophilia and bad necrophilia. It's crazy. Well, let me let me ask you, James. Editing the the zombie erotica book did that inspire you to go out and read any other sort of horror erotica, or was that sort of enough for you doing that one book? Uh, that was quite enough for me doing that one book. Um, one of the things that I did take out of that collection, though, I think, is that horror is a safe place for things that may not be accepted, uh, you know, yet elsewhere. We got a lot of stories that were from uh, gay or lesbian perspectives or non-traditional relationships. And I think that, you know, it's it's not really so much now, but I think that maybe horror has been one of the places where people can express ideas that to most society are not okay. And then, you know, they can just go, oh, well, it's just horror that they can still get that out there and still start kind of changing the landscape a little bit. So in that sense, you know, it's it was a really interesting collection to look at, but no, no, that was enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing I think is so awesome about, I mean, I think it's so amazingly awesome that a book of zombie erotica can exist and not only exist, but sell well. When you think about the fact that 30 years ago, that would just brand you as the most marginal of outsiders um, to have anything to do with it. And the fact that it's, it's popular and can find an audience. One of the things I think that, that a lot of horror writers are missing these days is how much the genre is changing. Um, and they're holding on to the past. It's, you know, when you see how, What's popular now is Laurel K. Hamilton. It's Twilight. It's horror, but the monsters are celebrated. I mean, Guillermo del Toro or Clive Barker, these people who are, you know, huge icons now and, and tremendously popular, they're people who celebrate the monsters. I mean, China Mieville, you know, he's got way more interest in his monsters than his human beings. And that these are people who we're allowed to be on the monster's side now. Um, you know, and, and you see things like Twilight and it's it's like, you know, it's horror, but it's romance. They're not scared of the monster. The monster's not attacking them. They're getting married to the monster. They're having babies with the monster. It's this interesting thing where 
you look at old Cronenberg movies or Clive Barker drawings, and you see people who are doing body modification now to look like that. You see people swapping their genders and sort of, you know, going going male to female or female to male. And some people who choose to stay in the middle and, and embrace neither. And these were all things that were considered freakish and monstrous. And it's now become mainstream. And in a way, horror has become very much this amazing sort of, rather than this conservative um reaction where the monster has to be eradicated and destroyed and the status quo has to be preserved it's now become this genre about the monster carrying this flag into the future and saying this way for your double genitals <laughs> this way for your horns this way for your tail this way to express your anger on the outside of your body you know it's an amazing thing that's happened in horror and i sometimes see horror writers who just aren't getting it and they're angry about twilight and they're angry about laurel k hamilton and they're angry about these changes and they feel threatened by them and it's like guys you're over you 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 are the bones that this city's being built on sorry i didn't mean i didn't mean to rant sorry about that no that was that was good no that was like speak preach preach it brother um but no, like Grady, that's yeah. I, I I like that speech. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, okay. So I think oh, we're gonna thanks. wrap things up there. So Grady, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun. And James, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thanks again to Dan Simmons for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to Gunshy Twenty One for giving us five stars on iTunes. We're currently up to three hundred and sixteen ratings, and we'd really like to get that up to four hundred. So if you're a long-time listener, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. Also, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you live in the New York area and want to meet up with me and other listeners, follow Geeks Guide NYC on Twitter. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.